Stop. Think. Listen. Today is the Holy Sabbath. We are in God's house. This is where we ought to be on the Holy Sabbath day. Have you ever thought of what a wonderful moment it is to come into this sanctuary on the Holy Sabbath day to enjoy the fellowship of other believers? Everyone is here because you want to be here. Otherwise, you might not. There's nothing mandatory about being here. No one's going to come and drag you out of your house. That is, unless you're Seth. Benson. Seth knows that he cannot sleep on the Sabbath day at home. Well, we want to welcome everyone to a Bible study this morning. It will be entitled, Death and the Afterlife. When anyone from our families pass on to the next world, it very naturally and normally raises a lot of questions. And rightly so. We ought to be concerned about what happens at death and what about the afterlife. Life after this life. Someone has said that the three greatest days in your life, three most significant days in your life, would be firstly the day of your physical birth into this world. That is the day when you're born into the world. Second day, second most important day of your life is the day of your spiritual birth. When your soul has been awakened and you have a new spiritual birth in a recreation in Christ our Savior. Your spiritual coming to life. The third most important day is when you leave this world and give an account of the life you have lived. What life did you live? How did you live it? And that day becomes extremely important because we don't have a redo. We never are allowed to come back and try it again. So the third day, the day of our, our passing, is the final accounting time for life. Now regarding the first day, remember this. Your physical arrival into this world comes with a lot of changes, or I should say, unchangeable events over which you had no power. You did not make a choice as to your election, your calling, your gifts, your gender, 
your time of birth, your parents. Think of how many choices you did not have. Your birth order, the tribe you're born into, the intelligence, physical traits, personality, talents, lifespan, are all unchangeable factors over which we have zero control. So we arrive here with a sovereign God having made most of the really significant choices in our life. One of those choices, however, that God makes rises above all others. Which one do you think that might be? It is election. The election is either you are or you aren't. Now, regarding the second important day, why is this day the most important day of your life in this world? The second day, most important day, is the day you are born again, recreated in the image and likeness of God. That is the day that will determine where you go at the end of life. That will determine whether you go into the kingdom of God or whether you don't. So that is a significant day and why we call it singularly the most important day of your life, the second day, the day you're born again. And the third day that we must remember is this. The third day is when our spirit and our soul departs from this body and our temple, our body, goes into the ground. I didn't say cremation. Cremation is not biblical. It is a blasphemous act against God who created the body. God will resurrect the body from the grave. He doesn't want the ashes spread over the mountains, over the ocean, or over the seashore. So cremation is not in Scripture for God's children. It may be okay for criminals. It may be okay for certain people, but not for the children of God. Abraham and Sarah were buried in the cave of Machpelah. Isaac and Rebekah were buried right alongside them. Jacob and, Rach and, and Leah, Jacob and Leah, not Rachel, were buried alongside them. Same burial ground. They were all buried, not cremated. So the third day is the day that your passing from this world takes place. Third most important day. And that is the day of your passing. And that is what we're going to talk about today. We'll not be talking about the first day, most important day, or the second most important day, but 
the third day, the day that you leave this body. The body you're now living in, one day you will leave that body. So let's talk about that today. Now I'm going to ask my little, I have a friend here that's going to come and help me. And he's a very dear young man. And he's going to come up and help me, and that is Mr. Ezekiel. He's going to come up here, position a chair right here, so he can join with me in the reading. Now, if you'll look at your worksheet, we are on the uh, subject of death and the afterlife, questions and answers. So can we read the first question together? Question number one, boys and girls and everyone. Does the soul survive the death of the body? The answer to this question is an emphatic yes, but some understanding of the nature of being is essential for this study to proceed. So let's go to question number two to help us. What does the Bible say regarding the nature of being at the day of the creation of the spirit and soul? Now, all the answers for this study will be found in the Bible. So our reader will turn to Genesis chapter 1. We will all turn there. I'd like for this to be a Bible study. You may want to write in little notes in your Bible. We'll be turning to Genesis chapter 1. And our reader will read for us from verse 26 and 27 which will give us the nature of our created state. And God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him, male and female created he them. And then we're going to turn to Genesis 5, verses 1 and 2. And our reader again will read for us from Genesis 5, verses 1 and 2. Now, you have to remember every word we're reading. Think about it. This is the book of the generations of Adam. In the day that God created man, in the likeness of God made he him. Male and female created he them, and blessed them and called their name Adam in the day when they were created. Now, Genesis chapter 1 and 2 are all about the same creation, the Adam-kind creation. There is no body, no physical body created in Genesis 1, 26 and 27. The first physical body is not created and in fact, it's not even formed until Genesis 2 and verse 7. So we'll not get lost there, but let's go to question number 3. And can we read that one together? What is the meaning of our being created in the image and likeness of God in Genesis 1, 26, 27, and 5, 1? The answer to that question is our God is a triune in nature, a trinity, if you please. Our Father in heaven is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 
That is why you see the plural pronoun us and our in Genesis 1.26, Genesis 3.22, Isaiah 6, 3, 3 and verse 8, and all through those verses, there is a triunity, an interplay between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You cannot escape it. It's un- inescapable. You have to deal with the personal pronouns us and our. Us and our. It's all about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in the creative design and work of God. The triunity or the trinity of man, we are made in the image and after the likeness of God. What does that mean? It means that we are triune in our nature. So let's read about it from the Bible, and we will join our voices together. Boys and girls, I trust that all young people are with me. In 1 Thessalonians 5.29, this is a remarkable passage. Think about this as you read it. Let's read it together. 1 Thessalonians 5.29 And the very God of peace sanctify you holy. And I pray God your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Question, what part of speech is the little word and? Conjunction. If you were to study the Greek language you would know that the little conjunctive word and is of great importance. Notice how the wording here is. That your whole spirit and soul and body separating all three entities of who we are. Now isn't that amazing? The Bible says we're made in the image and after the likeness of God. You are unable to avoid the reality of the Adam-kind creation being made in the image and after the likeness of God. Let's read, however, another verse in the Bible from Hebrews 4, 1, and 2. And let's read that together. For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Question. Does Hebrews 4.12 encompass the body, soul, and spirit? It does. Divides the spirit from the soul from the body. So you can just go through all kinds of verses proving that we are a triunity, trinity made in the image and likeness of God. Now, we could read 
Luke 1, 46 and 47, Isaiah 26, 9, and other verses, but will not uh, be redundant on that. So let's go to verse number four, uh, question number four. Can we read that together? What is a more definitive meaning of the spirit, soul, and body? The Old Testament word for spirit is ruah, meaning breath, air, wind, or spirit. The New Testament word for spirit is pneuma, and is essentially that of the Old Testament ruah. The spirit is immaterial and invisible. The spirit is a triunity representing the conscience, which is the monitor of your soul, perception, which is the part of you that gives you spiritual discernment, and intuition, which gives you promptings of the Holy Spirit. You don't know where they came from, but a prompting has come to you, and that prompting can be from the Holy Spirit. The Spirit gives us God consciousness and is the medium through which we have communion with God. So the Spirit is very important. It is through our spirit that we have communion with God. Our spirit is what is involved in prayer, for example. Let's go to number five. And our reader will read this question for us. What happens when the spirit leaves the body? The spirit leaves the body and the body dies. The spirit goes back to God who gave it. So Ecclesiastes 12:7 will tell us in plain language what happens to the spirit at the death of the body. Let's read together. Then shall the dust return to the earth as it was, and the Spirit shall return unto God who gave it. Now let's go to James 2.26 for a second witness, and our reader will read this one. For as the body without the Spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. Without the Spirit, the body has no life. So let's go back and recall Genesis 2-7 into the formation of the first body in which the spirit and soul were placed. We're going now to Genesis 2-7. Here we have the first body of the Adam kind creation that's going to receive a previously created soul and spirit. So our reader will now read for, from us, for, for us from Genesis 2-7. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, the spirit. And man became a living soul, having self-consciousness. That is Genesis 2-7. Now, we need to remember that when God formed Adam, it, the Bible does not use the word create. Why does the word form, formed, appear and not create? create? Because there's no new matter being created. 
Adam's body is being made from what? The dust of the, of the ground which has already been created. So the word formed is from the Hebrew root word yatsar, and it means from a substance already in existence. So there was no creation, no, no new created anything. At the end of the sixth day, the Bible says, God finished his work. So he's not redoing anything. God is not going to create anything after day number six. He finished his work. He did not leave anything unfinished. So there's no new matter and no new energy created after day number six. We are now ready for question number six. What is the nature of the soul? The soul is non-corporeal, meaning non-material. The soul is not made of physical matter. It is the invisible part, immaterial part of who we are. The spirit is invisible, non-material. The soul is invisible, non-material. You cannot take and hold the soul in your hand because you can't see it. You cannot hold the spirit. They are invisible parts of who you are. Now, the soul, like the spirit, is a trinity. Made in the likeness, after the image and likeness of God, just like the spirit, our soul is like the Spirit in the sense that it too is a trinity. It is a trinity of the will, the intellect, and our emotions. Everything is in threes. Now what does the number three, what is the meaning of the number three? Well, let's draw a, draw a triangle in your mind. We have one side, two sides, to complete the triangle, we need another side. The number three is completeness. So our spirit is three. Our soul is three. The will, the intellect, and the emotion. Now, let's look then more closely. The Old Testament word for soul is nephish. The Greek New Testament word for soul is psychic. And they both essentially mean the same thing. As we have said before, the soul represents the will, the intellect, and the emotions. We say that the will is the decider of the soul. It makes your decisions, the will. I will go to the Sabbath service today. I will wear this red dress. Your will is making those decisions. It is the decider of the soul. The intellect is the thinking part of your soul. Thinking part of your soul. Let's think about how the engine in a car works. 
I'm going to employ my intellect to describe how a gasoline engine functions. Intellect. The, the emotions are the affections of your soul. And that's a very important part of who you are. The will, the intellect, and the emotions. It is through the soul that we have self-consciousness. We know of our own existence. We are conscious, we are conscious of our existence. Now this is a very interesting concept, church, because if you think about it, Adam and Eve had no conscious awareness of certain things before they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They had no conscious awareness of what evil was. They did not know what evil was. They only knew what good was. They did not know evil. In fact, they did not know evil until they ate from this forbidden tree. They were sorry when they learned what evil was. Because now it awakened them to evil itself. They now had a conscious awareness of evil. And that conscious awareness became the problem that we all face every day. Our conscious awareness that we have a choice between good and evil. And every day of our life we're exercising the choice between doing right or doing wrong. And America today is a nation without a conscience. Because when we leave God and Scripture, we start losing our conscious awareness of sin. Agreed? That's, that's true. We are going now to number seven, and we'll let our reader read the questions for us. What happens to the soul when the body dies? The soul, being non-corporal, is not made of material substance, and being invisible, departs the body. Genesis 35, verse 16 through 18, 1 Kings 17, verse 17 through 22, and Luke 16, verses 19 through 26. Now, before we move further, I must warn this congregation and do my diligent duty to let you know that it's a very controversial matter as to what happens to the soul when the body dies. There is great diversity of opinion on this question. I propose to let the Bible explain it all, and you make the choice. So the question before us, what happens to your soul at the death of the body? We already know what happens to the spirit. It departs the body. The soul departs the body. We already learned that the spirit goes back to God that gave it. But we have not decided yet at this moment, what happens to the soul. Now, we need to do that 
And the only way we're going to be able to solve this problem is we're going to have to open the pages of the Bible. And I would advise everyone in the congregation to open your Bibles at this point. Mark your Bibles and be thinking as we read these very, very critically, critically important verses. We're going to go first to Genesis 35, and our reader is going to take us back to a very, very dear lady. Now, all of you know that Rachel in the Bible was obviously one of the most beautiful women that ever lived. She would pass any Hollywood screen test and make them wonder if they had ever seen such a beautiful woman. Rachel. Let's go read about Rachel's death in Genesis 35, beginning at verse number 16. And our reader will read Genesis 35, 16 through 18. And the question is, what happened to Rachel's soul when her body died? I'm asking this question because I just read this week on the printed page from a kingdom identity minister that the soul goes into a deep sleep at the death of the body. And it stays asleep until the resurrection. I just read that. So if you're going to be a good Bible student, you're going to have to get into your Bible and let the Bible teach you. And that's what I want to do right now. I don't want to tell you. I want the Bible to tell you what happens to the soul at the death of the body. Thank you, Ezekiel, as you read on. And they journeyed from Bethel, and there was but a little way to come to Ephrath. And Rachel travailed, and she had hard labor. And it came to pass, when she was in hard labor, that the midwife said unto her, Fear not, thou shalt have this son also. And it came to pass, as her soul was in departing, for she died, that she called his name Benoni, but his father called him Benjamin. I asked the question, did the soul of Rachel depart from her body? And I'm hearing the affirmative from several people. Hopefully no one is denying what the Bible is saying. That the soul of Rachel departed from her body. It did not go down into the ground with the body to stay there until the resurrection. Now, let's go to another life example. 1 Kings 17 17 through 22. Now, try to personalize these, verse, these stories. Imagine you're there. Imagine this is your child, that it is your loved one, and it'll mean more to you. So our reader now will read about the prophet Elijah. Pass after these things that the son of the woman the mistress of the house fell sick, and his sickness was so sore that there was no breath left in him. And she said unto Elijah, What have I to do with thee, O thou man of God? Art thou come unto me to call my sin to remembrance and to slay my son? 
And he said unto her, Give me thy son. And he took him out of her bosom, and carried him up into a loft, where he abode, and laid him upon his own bed. And he cried unto the Lord, and said, O Lord my God, hast thou also brought evil upon the widow with whom I sojourn by slaying her son? And he stretched himself upon the child three times, and cried unto the Lord, and said, O Lord my God, I pray thee, let this child's soul come into him again. And the Lord heard the voice of Elijah, and the soul of the child came into him again, and he revived. Thank you. Now we have a, a child who apparently is dead because the soul has departed from the body temporarily. By a direct miracle from heaven, Elijah, per, he performs mouth to mouth resuscitation here and what happens how does the child live again what's, what's happening what brings life back to the child and does the soul return to that child when the soul return it left it returned now folks this is this is where it all is your soul is not made of material substance. When you die, your soul doesn't die. I think we better in, enter into the record, Matthew 10, 28. So if you'll just turn in your Bibles to Matthew 10, 28. In the very words of Jesus, we're told who to fear. And what not to fear. Can we turn there and read it, Ezekiel? Je Matthew 10, 28. And fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul. Now stop. Able to kill the body, not able to kill the soul. You could have a machine gun and shoot someone full of holes and you're not going to kill the soul. Read on, Ezekiel. But rather, fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Okay, that's, that's a really... And that verse is backed up by uh, the Gospel of Luke as well. But we'll not go further into that. Now, we've given you two examples of the soul that departed the body. In the case of Rachel, the soul did not return to the body, so she died and was buried. In the case of the child brought back to life in the lifetime of Elijah, that child lived again because the soul returned to the body. So let's go to the third example. Third example will take us to the Gospel of Luke, and we'll go to the very, very controversial story of the rich man and Lazarus. St. Luke 16, beginning in verse 19, and our reader will begin reading in Luke 16, 
beginning at verse 19, and we will have him read all the way through to verse 26. Now, dear family, I want to thank every one of you for giving full attention to the words we're going to read. Number one, remember, this is not a parable. It doesn't even call itself a parable. Contrast this with all the parables in the Bible and see the difference between the way this event is treated versus a typical parable. This is a life story. A life story of someone, two people who lived, a rich man and a beggar, Lazarus and Dives, otherwise called the rich man. So our reader will begin at verse 19. Watch closely the wording. There was a certain rich man, which was clothed in purple and fine linen, and fared sumptuously every day. And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, which was laid at his gate, full of sores, and desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. And it came to pass that the beggar died, and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And in hell he lift up his eyes, being in torments, and seeth Abraham afar off, and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus, that he may dip the tip of his finger in water, and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that thou, in thy lifetime, receivest thy good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted, and thou art tormented. And beside all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed, so that they which would pass from hence to you cannot, neither can they pass to us that would come from thence. Thank you. Now, in this story of Lazarus and the rich man, You'll notice that in verse 22, the beggar dies and that beggar is Lazarus. He was carried by what? The angels into Abraham's bosom. What happens to the rich man? The rich man died and was buried. Now, is this a reality? Is this a real thing? Or is this some kind of a myth, an allegory? See, you, you have to remember that unless otherwise noted by other laws of biblical her hermeneutics, you have to treat the Bible as written. You cannot go into imaginations, human imaginations and opinions about what you think or someone else thinks, except what God says. 
and don't argue with God's Word. Just believe it. That's all you have to do. There's a rich man. There's a poor man. They both die. One of them dies and is buried. But when he is dead and buried, something about that rich man is still living. Because he's, gonna, he's going to talk with Abraham. And it's not his arm talking with Abraham. His arm is in, is, is in the grave. So what part of the rich man is talking? What, what is happening to the beggar, Lazarus? The angel carried some part of Lazarus into Abraham's bosom. What did the angel carry? He didn't carry Lazarus' body. The body of Lazarus, what happened to Lazarus? Does it say that Lazarus died? Yes. I'm reading verse 22. Lazarus died. What happened to his body? It was buried. What Where is the part of Lazarus that's talking? It's the soul, the intellect, the will, the emotion, the invisible, immaterial part of Lazarus is still alive. See, you cannot escape God in life or in death. No one will escape God. Now think about this. A man stands on the edge of a bridge and decides to end his life. Will he end his life? No! The moment that life leaves this body, he's face to face with God. See, life is very serious, church. And that's why you give your life to Jesus Christ. So that you can be on the winning side of life. That's urgent. That's the greatest gift that you'll ever have. The assurance of knowing that nothing can beat you. Cancer cannot beat you. What can beat you? Jesus said it all. Romans 8. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tri tribulation... Shall tribulation... Famine, nakedness, peril, or sword. No, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. What a, what a Savior. What a God that we serve. What a powerful God. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you. Now, here we have a dialogue between a rich man and Abraham. Now, Abraham is certainly not in his physical body, but he's very much alive. Amen? Abraham's alive, and he's in dialogue with the rich man. Where is the rich man? 
His body's in the, in the ground. But where is the soul of the rich man? We just read about it. Verse 23, and in hell. That is H-A-D-E-S, Hades in the Greek. He lift up his eyes, being in torments, and sees Abraham afar off. And Lazarus is in his bosom. Lazarus is safe. How many believe that Lazarus is safe? He's secure. He's in the bosom of Abraham, which is a name for paradise or a place where the righteous go, awaiting the resurrection. Well, let's move on with our little worksheet here. So now we know that the soul does indeed depart the body at death. So let's go to number eight now. Where does the soul go then when it leaves the body? If the soul has been redeemed, that is saved, and all those verses in Psalm talk about the redemption of the soul, bought and paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ, it goes to the third heaven, and together with the Spirit is our spiritual body awaiting its reunion with our physical body on the day of the resurrection of the dead. Luke 23, 42, 43. Now, we are now in the Gospel of St. Luke. Chapter 23, our reader will read verses 42 and 43. Here is the question now. We're asking, where does the soul of the righteous go at the death of the body? The answer will now come from God's Word, Luke 23, beginning in verse number 43. Verse number 42. And he, the penitent thief, said unto Jesus, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto thee, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. Do you know that's one of the most significant statements in the Bible? On the day of the crucifixion, two thieves one on either side of the cross. One goes to his death unsaved. Not sorry for anything. He is ready to die unsaved, unpenitent, no regard for a future life. The other thief, hanging on that cross comes to repentance. He confesses. We don't know all the words he said. We only know what he said to Jesus. 
And what did he say to Jesus? Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Isn't that true for all of us? Remember me. Remember everyone when you come into your kingdom. The answer Jesus gave him has been one of the most debated statements in all the world of theology because theologians have argued for centuries over where the comma goes. The little comma. Attention all grammar students. That little comma became a debate and remains a debate on this verse for the last 2,000 years. Look down at the verse again. Jesus said, what did Jesus say? Verily I say unto you, unto thee rather, verily I say unto thee, comma, today shalt thou be with me in paradise. Now, do you know what the you know what the soul sleep people argue? I'd like to acquaint you with it so that you can be ready to answer the unbeliever class who don't believe what the Bible teaches. They would like this to read this way. Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto thee today, comma, Shalt thou be with me in paradise? Somewhere you'll be with me in paradise. But not today. Not today. Somewhere out in the future. You know how long that comma has been there in the Greek? From the beginning. But you have to change the comma to change the meaning. So let's read on now <clears throat> to number nine. Since we know that Jesus said today, you're going to be with me in paradise, we need to know where paradise is. Fair question. Fair question. Where is paradise located? Paradise is another name for Abraham's bosom as in Luke 16. 22, and has reference to the third heaven where the saved souls are carried, to, are carried by the angels at the death of the body. So let's go to 2 Corinthians 12, 1 through 4. Let the Bible teach the Bible. Let the Bible teach the Bible. It is not expedient for me, doubtless, to glory, I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. I knew a man in Christ above 14 years ago. Whether in the body, I cannot tell, or whether out of the body, I cannot tell. God knoweth. Such an one caught up to the third heaven. Stop. Caught up to where? I want to hear a lot of people say third heaven. Do you know that you have kingdom-believing people that do not even believe there is, is a heaven? We are compelled to know our Bibles, church. We live by the Word of God. 
You can't go through life on human opinion. We have to know what the Bible says. What does Scripture say? Here's a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I cannot tell. Who do you think this is? It's St. Paul. Caught up where? To the third heaven. We're going to give the third heaven a name. Our reader is going to give us the name. Read on, reader. And I knew such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I cannot tell. God knoweth. How that he was caught up into paradise and heard unspeakable words, which it is not lawful for a man to utter. What a marvelous, marvelous account. Now, we could go to Revelation 2, 7, but we're running out of time, so we'll, we'll bypass that. But Revelation 2, 7 is going to tell you that the tree of life is there. Paradise is a description of what we sometimes call the Garden of Eden. There is no place like it. Believe it or not, we once had a printing press here that Mr. Bernie run and owned and operated called Paradise Printing Press. Now, obviously, it was burned down mysteriously, so it didn't turn out to be paradise for a, for a long time. But it was wonderful while it lasted. Now, let's go to question number 10. What happens to the spirit and soul in heaven? 1 Corinthians 15, 44. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. I didn't say that. You read it out of your Bible. The physical body that we live in here on earth dies. If we die in a state of salvation, we will have a spiritual body where the spirit and soul resides in the third heaven or paradise. 2 Corinthians 5, 1 through 10 speaks of this spiritual body where the redeemed children of God now live in the third heaven. Now, what we need to do is stop, pause now, and go to 2 Corinthians 5. We are now going to read some of the most interesting words in the Bible, in my humble opinion. For we know that we have a tabernacle in heaven. Let's read about it. 2 Corinthians 5, beginning in verse 1. For we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building of God, and house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed upon with our house which is from heaven. If so be, that being clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we that are in this tabernacle do groan, being burdened, not for that we would be unclothed, but clothed upon, that mortality might be swallowed up of life. Now he that hath wrought us for the selfsame thing is God, who also hath given unto us the earnest of the Spirit. Therefore we are always confident, knowing that whilst we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body 
and to be present with the Lord. Wherefore, we labor that whether present or absent, we may be accepted of him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that every one may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Thank you. Now, here's what we need to remember, church. Your spirit and soul are not just wandering aimlessly in an ethereal state in the third heaven. They are in a spiritual body, and that spiritual body will one day be joined with their physical body here on this earth in resurrection glory. And do you know what gives us our glorified bodies? When our physical body is resurrected and our spiritual body, the soul and spirit, are reunited with that physical body here on the day of the resurrection. That's going to be a wonderful day. Let's go to number 11, question number 11. How are the redeemed souls in the third heaven spending their time? What do they do up there in the third heaven? Does the Bible tell us? Does the Bible tell us? Well, let me, let me start out with John 14. The Bible says, words of Jesus, John 14, Let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, then what? What does it say then? I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. And the way you know, whither I go, you know, and the way you know. And poor Thomas saith unto him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, and how can we know the way? Jesus said unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Isn't that powerful? Isn't that marvelous? Oh, thank you, Jesus, for such a beautiful, beautiful word. So let's go now to Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. We're answering the question, what do the righteous in the third heaven do? They're not reading a Nancy Drew mystery. They're not reading a Harlequin or a Louis L'Amour Western. They're not watching Netflix or some other media. Here we go. From the Word of God. And when he had opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God, and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? And the white robes were given unto every one of them. And it was said unto them that they should rest yet for a little season, until their fellow servants also, and their brethren, that should be killed as they were, should be fulfilled. Isn't that amazing? 
The verses that we just read say the martyrs are in heaven crying out, How long will it be till you avenge our blood? Do they have conscious life? Are they alive? Of course they are. Where's the bodies of the martyrs? They're in the ground. But the martyrs are very much alive. Isn't it marvelous to, to remember that Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. But whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. For me, that is probably the singular great verse in the Bible. He that believeth in me shall never die. Now, either you believe that or don't. If you believe the soul goes to sleep with the body, you don't believe that. But if you believe that when you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God with a sincere heart, and you've repented of your sin, and you've confirmed that confession with baptism for the remission of that sin as the seal of your faith, you will never die. That's a promise the Bible makes. I believe it. God, God says it, so that's all I need. Let's go. Well, we've run out of time. We're running out of time now. I, will, I wanted to go to Revelation 7, 13 through 17, which tells you a whole lot about what the righteous in heaven are doing. The Bible tells us we don't have to speculate. We don't have to go to some human opinion to figure that out. Just read it out of the Bible. So you can read Revelation 7 through 13 through 17, Revelation 20, 1 through 10, and that's just the beginning. Let's go to number 12. Reader, would you take over? What happens? What happens to the souls of those who die unsaved? The souls that die unsaved will be in a place called Hades, translated hell in the authorized King James Version, and is a place where the soul is separated from God. The story of the rich man and Lazarus in Luke 16, verses 19 to 31, is the most vivid picture of hell to be found in Scripture. The souls of the unsaved dead remain in Hades, hell, until the judgment of Gehenna. The Greek word Gehenna equals Gehenna and is the place in the Valley of Hinnom where anciently human sacrifices were offered in 2 Chronicles 33, verse 6 and Jeremiah 7, verse 31. The word Gehenna occurs in Matthew 5, verse 22 and 29 and 30, chapter 10, verse 28, chapter 18, verse 9, chapter 23, verse 15, and verse 33, in Mark, chapter 9, verse 43, verse 45 and 47, and in Luke, chapter 12, verse 5. And in every instance comes from the lips of Jesus Christ in the most solemn warning of the consequences of sin. So those are very, very significant verses cited by the reader here. From the lips of Jesus comes the greatest amount of information on what happens to the unsaved souls who die. 
the unsaved soul goes into a place called Hades, translated as hell in the authorized King James Version of the Bible, and they remain there until the judgment of Gehenna. At the judgment of Gehenna, they will be judged for the life they lived on this earth. Now, the question would arise, what is Gehenna? So our reader will read, Gehenna is described. Gehenna is described as the place where their worm never dies, and the fire is never to be quenched. In Mark chapter 9, verses 42 through 48. The expression is identical in the meaning with the lake of fire in Revelation chapter 19, verse 20, chapter 20, verse 10, verses 14 and 15. This, the condition of the meaning of the phrase, the second death, as in John chapter 8, verse 24, and Revelation chapter 21, verse 8, and Luke 16, verse 23. We're going to turn to Mark chapter 9. We're about finished here. Let's go to Mark 9, 42. Can we all turn there to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9, beginning in verse 42. Now, take and mark some verses in this reading. Mark chapter 9, beginning in verse 42. Go ahead, reader. And whosoever shall offend one of these little ones that believe in me, it is better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck, and he were cast into the sea. And if thy hand offend thee, cut it off. It is better for thee to enter into life maimed than having two hands to go into hell, into the fire that never shall be quenched, where their worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. And if thy foot offend thee, cut it off. It is better for thee to enter halt into life than having two feet to be cast into hell. Stop. Congregation, who is the author of the words that, is, that are being read now? Jesus. Is there any higher authority than Jesus? Does anyone know a higher authority than the very eternal Son of God? Continue on. Into the fire that shall never be quenched, where their worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. And if thine eye offend thee, pluck it out. It is better for thee to enter into the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hellfire, where their worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. Amen and amen. Now we're going to read for a for a, as we come right down to the home stretch, turn to Revelation 20. Revelation 20. And let's read Revelation 10 and then verse 14 and 15, if you will, please. Revelation 20, verse 10, 14 and 15. And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are, and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. Now stop. Death and hell are cast into the lake of fire. K 
Can something that doesn't exist be cast into the fire? If there is no hell, how can hell be thrown into the lake of fire? If there is no hell. All I'm suggesting here, church, is to let the Bible be your teacher. Stay away from human opinion. Let the Bible teach you. Read on. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Now, final question 13. What happens to the body at death? The body, soma, is made of bones, flesh, and blood. It is in our body that we have world consciousness. Through our physical senses, sight, hearing, taste, touch, feeling. So our bodies die and are placed in the ground, but our soul and our spirit if we die in a state of salvation, continue on. So read on, beginning with the bodies of those dying. Last paragraph. The bodies of those dying in salvation are raised in the first resurrection of the dead. Revelation 1, in Revelation. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 16, and Revelation 20, verse 6. See also Job 19, verse 25 through 27, Isaiah chapter 26, verse 19, Psalm chapter 16, verses 9 through 10, and Daniel chapter 12, verse 2. The unsaved dead are raised to stand in judgment at the great white throne judgment in Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15. We're going to read the last verses now from, from the book of Job, chapter 19, verses 25 through 27. We have a beautiful hymn in the hymn book that is taken from these verses. Last verses to be read, Job 19, Job 19, 25 through 27. For I know that my Redeemer liveth, and that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. And though after my skin worms destroy this body, Yet in my flesh shall I see God, whom I shall see for myself, and mine eyes shall behold, and not another, though my reins be consumed within me. Job, the oldest book in the Bible, foresaw the resurrection of the body. Aren't those beautiful words? Though worms destroy this body, Yet in my flesh, I shall see God. How many would like to visit with Job? How would you like to visit with Job on the morning after he lost everything that was dear to him? Let's all be standing.